Amen. I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter number 3 this morning. Philippians chapter number 3. If you're visiting with us, we're picking back up where we left off from last week. We've taken the book of Philippians as our task to work through verse by verse. And we find ourselves this morning in the beginning portion of Philippians chapter number 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning, but the primary text will be verse number 3. In a similar way, we took verses 1 through 3 last week, kind of really honed in on verses 1 and 2 and left 3 for this week. Um, we'll do something similar this week with our points and take up, for the most part, the first half of verse 3 and then take no confidence in the flesh, Paul's personal testimony um, up next week, but we'll touch on it. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we approach it this morning, and we'll read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, and go to the Lord in prayer. This is the Word of the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what, th but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Pray with me. Father, we come to you once again. I pray boldly into the throne room of grace, and at the same time I pray humbly, Father, and with a reverence, and at the same time with a warmness, Father, with a trembling, and yet at the same time with a joy, Father, recognizing that your Son has accomplished the impossible, and he has done the unthinkable, he has taken it as his task to do that which no man would ever do, nor could he ever do, and that is enter into the world to save sinners, Father, just as I, Father, in, in whom I may argue with the Apostle Paul, of whom I am chief. And Father, we come to you this morning because we have nowhere else to go. And we stand before, our eyes touch upon, Father, and our ears hear, and words truths that are just too too glorious for us father higher than we could ever imagine too lofty this morning i um, you know, we've taken it as our task father to search out these truths but father we pray that you would just reveal these things to us because we know and um, that this is a mountain too high to climb father that these depths are too um, far for us to tread and we need your help Father, we recognize that without the action and activity of the Spirit of God this morning, Father, then what we've done is simply read words on a page. But at the same time, we know, Father, that if you'll meet us in the text of the power of your Spirit, that you can bring to life, Father, truths eternal. 
We pray that you would accomplish that this morning, Father, and in our own hearts and in all of the hearts, Father, that are represented here. Father, and those that are without Christ and those that are in Christ. Father, we pray for our little ones this morning as they sit and attentively striving to hear a word here and there that you would be with them. Father, that you would help them to grasp these great and lofty things. We pray that you would be with the parents, Father, and of those that are training their little ones to be patient, long-suffering, gracious, yet at the same time firm, Father. We pray that all those that are in our midst, Father, would um, we'll just approach this morning the Word with the utmost reverence and joy, waiting to hear from God Himself. Father, help us to receive these words this morning, Father. Help us to stay our minds and our hearts um, upon eternal things for the next few moments, Father. And may we reap an eternal reward, not because we've earned it, but because you're gracious and loving kind to us, Father. And we trust that that kindness will be extended in this gathering. Help us to look to Christ, exalt him for his honor and glory in the time that we have. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. As I reflect upon this text over the past couple of weeks, particularly verses 1 through 3, I'm, I'm reminded of the great priority given to the church, and the church at large, but, but um, practically speaking to this church, this body of believers, this assembly of gathered believers. I'm reminded of the great priority given to, given to us um, to protect the purity of the gospel. Um, to protect the purity of the, not only to proclaim the gospel with clarity, to be, but, but to also protect the purity of the gospel. And that sounds pretty simple. And to many that concept is simple, maybe a little too simple. And some would look at it um, as, as completed to simply guard the statement that is on our website or in our statement of faith. But to protect the purity of the gospel is a much more comprehensive activity than that. Why? Because the, the gospel is more than simply getting the words right. Many people today get the words right, and it is more than clear that they don't understand the gospel. And a, and a clear example of that is here, our own children. You know, Our own children will often get the words right as soon as they can um, recite them back to us. Why? Because we're devoted, I hope, um, to training our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Um, we're devoted to discipling them, to catechizing our children, to teaching them um, what is the truth, and particularly at the, first, at the first opportunity to give them the gospel and to have them recite that back to us. Why? So that their little hearts might be changed. Yet at the same time, the first time that they get the order of words right, we may encourage them, but we don't take them um, to the waters of baptism. We don't put the cup and the bread in their mouth. We don't brand them immediately a Christian and give them all the rights that God affords to Christians. No, actually, that would be an offense to the gospel. See, the gospel carries with it not only a message, but also behind that message certain realities, and there is a certain nature um, to the gospel that when the gospel takes root in a mind, it's more than a mental ascent, um, but it is actually something that carries with it a nature that changes that individual from the inside out. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. 
Um, and that when the gospel takes root in the life of a believer, um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is clear, they become a new man, they become a new woman, they become a new creature in Christ Jesus. They are born again, born from above. They are not only a professor of uh, Christianity, they are a possessor of eternal life. And eternal life is more than quantitative uh, reality, it is a qualitative Reality, And that's something we've argued from the book of Philippians, particularly Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, where Paul argues, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That at the end of your life, and even now, there is a weighing in the balances, per se, um, that your life is to, to be in accord with the gospel message. If you claim the gospel this morning, if you claim to be a Christian, if you adhere to that proposition of right-ordered words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that reality truly has been made known to you by the Spirit of God, then you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old man is taken away. You've been given new. And what should happen from that is that that eternal life, that quality of life, the very divine character of Jesus Christ Himself should display. Now, in its imperfection, sure. Um, in failures, sure. In sins, yes. But through repentance and faith, there is this onward pursuit of Christ and growing in Him. One of the great dangers when you have a false gospel within a church, such as we see here in Philippians chapter number 3 of the Judaizers, one of the great dangers when you have a false gospel is that it produces a false church. You end up with a whole body of believers. Why? Because a false gospel cannot save. It cannot regenerate. It cannot convert. And that false church is easily identifiable to the spiritual eye because it lacks the clear marks of the work of God. And the marks that are not merely external, but largely are internal. And that's why when you have a profession of faith, it is imperative, such as with a child, that you not only have a statement that is rightly ordered, but you have a heart that too is rightly ordered. That as much as with a state of repentance, we should often see, we should also see the fruit of repentance. That also with a profession of faith, we should see argued all throughout the New Testament the proof of it. And one question is, is, is that profession of faith the product of the work of God in the heart of man? Is that profession of faith the product of the work of God in the heart of man? Paul argues that not only will you know them by their message, but also you will, or Jesus actually argues, um, not only will you know them by their message, but you'll also know them by their fruit. But there is a distinct difference, not to be lorded over those who are not converted, but the reality is, is nonetheless, there is a distinct difference among the true people of God and those that claim true religion. Um, that distinctly marks them out as the people of God. Christianity is more than external forms. It's more than a mechanical show. It's more than religion. It's more than putting on um, religious regalia. A true Christianity 
is a Christianity of the heart, soul, and mind, the whole man changed by the glorious realities of Jesus Christ, and that manifests itself in the hands, in the feet, in the will of a mankind as that fruit is born out of true faith and true repentance. And that's what Paul, in some sense, deals with in this text. You'll remember that last week, if you're with us, if not, we'll just run through it very quickly, that the Apostle Paul has been writing to the, book of, or to the church at Philippi, this church that he has just the utmost respect and affection for. And Paul's actually instrumental in planting this church. Um, he was there at its birth, God sovereignly. Um, redirects his ministry to take the gospel to a few unconverted souls in Philippi that would be the birth of this church, this uh, solemn assembly of believers here at the church of Philippi. Almost ten years later, he's writing back from a Roman prison to continue his ministry as a man has come from Philippi to minister to his needs, um, a man who is named um, Epaphroditus. The first two chapters, um, you just see the love of Paul clearly displayed in his affection for this group of people in a particular way of encouraging them um, by his own report, but then also proclaiming the gospel message um, in such a way in Philippians 2 um, that that is just clear, concise, yet so exhaustive that we're still uh, plumbing the depths of that reality of Christ and his humiliation and exaltation even to this day, volumes still being written. Um, in chapter number 3, though, we see a transition. We see a redirection of the topic. And you see that in the word finally, my brethren. Um, he, he, the, the word finally is not the end of the sermon here, but it can actually be translated furthermore. He's redirecting and pivoting his instruction now to the church at Philippi. And he's redirecting his love to a different area. Um, there's a group of people known as the Judaizers. This is what we would call them. You boys and girls may remember um, last week, the Judaizers are those people um, who claim to be Christian and to uphold the doctrines of Christianity, such as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Yet at the same time, they would add to that finished work of Christ something of the law. So, so they would say that circumcision, along with um, belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is necessary for one's salvation. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we see just a clear example of that. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, there is a council that is actually called together to deal with that issue. The apostles gather together, and it's very clearly stated there that there were people infiltrating the church arguing that circumcision was necessary um, for salvation. The Apostle Paul is dealing with that here in this passage of Scripture. And he does it in a way that some may seem is harsh, but he's simply plain. Why? Because he understands the great danger that is entailed in a false gospel. And we see this all throughout Paul's ministry, particularly in Galatians, as he handles that with the most um, scathing type of rebuke. Um, for the churches there at Galatia, particularly those in who are proclaiming and propagating a false gospel. And he does it in a way here that, that I would love for you to use your sanctified imagination just a little bit, um, to where you could read verse number 2, actually verse number 1 in tandem to verse number 2, and you could see Paul as if he was having a dialogue with the leaders, the elders at the church at Ephesus. You can imagine for just a moment that it's more than, than Paul being tone deaf, and he's just sitting there very mon monotonously 
um, saying that there are these people that you should be aware of. But possibly, with the heart of the Apostle Paul, and the love that he has for Philippi, with the pastor's heart as a father over them in the faith, for many of them still their spiritual fathers. You can imagine for just a moment that after he, um, after he proclaims the glorious message of Jesus Christ in such high and lofty manners, that now he's going to turn to them and say, you must protect it at all costs. Beware, and he does it with a, a trifecta of this word beware. Verse 2, beware, beware, beware. You can almost hear it in his voice. Um, you can see it in his eyes, just the, the concern that he has. Why? Because these people are infiltrating churches all throughout um, the, 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 the Middle Eastern culture. Um, and they are leading churches astray, leaving them desolate, desolate, full of false converts. Why? Because they have a false gospel. And he identifies them with three marks or as three identifiers. Beware, first, their dogs. Beware of the evil workers. And thirdly, beware of the mutilation. He pulls no punches. He uses plain speech. And he calls it like he sees them. That they are dangerous, they are a threat to the church there at Philippi. Um, and when you sum up all of their labors, as genuine as it may be, and as sincere as they may be, know that it amounts to evil work at the end of it. Put it all in that column and beware of the mutilation. Um, that's the New King James rendering of it. You may have a, a translation that actually says the concision or the mutilators. Um, Paul here is no doubt making a play on words. Because these would have been those who were upholding circumcision um, as necessary. They were upholding it as necessary to salvation. They were actually arguing that they were the circumcision. But Paul is going to clearly outline the true circumcision here in verse number 3. So he's going to continue to distinguish himself and the church at Philippi from the false teachers with this phrase in verse number 3, for we are the circumcision. You can really see the significance um, of this reality, of the true nature, the marks of a true church, in this initial phrase in verse number 3, for we are the circumcision. It is a contrast to the Judaizers' self-proclamation that they were the true people of God because they were simply circumcised. Paul clarifies, no, they're nothing more than mutilators of the flesh. They're, they're like the prophets of Baal in Elijah's day who perform the cutting of the flesh. is nothing more than a pagan ritual. And he says, for we are the true circumcision. We are the circumcision made without hands. And I know that I sent out just a, a brief outline to, to those that are, that are here um, and gave you three points of those true marks. And those marks, three marks would be of a true circumcision, those who worship God in the Spirit. It's very easy. Paul gives us those bullet points in verse 3. Those who rejoice in Christ Jesus and those who have no confidence in the flesh. So what are those three marks we're going to look at this morning? Those who worship God in the Spirit, those who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and those who have no confidence in the flesh. Yet at the same time, I could mess all that entire, that entire outline up and give you an initial characteristic or mark of a true believer um, with this first phrase, for we are the circumcision. And I might title like this, that the true Christian, the first mark of a true Christian, 
has, is the reality that he, has, he or she has been circumcised in the heart. That the true Christian has been circumcised in the heart. And the, the next three points are simply going to be kind of an explanation of what that would look like in the life of a believer. What does a circumcised heart look like? That's the significance of the, there's such a significance in this phrase. So I want to spend just a few minutes to, to, to hash that out. What do we actually mean by that phrase, for we are the circumcision? For we are the circumcision. We won't go into all the details because of the little one's ears, but circumcision was literally the physical cutting away of a man's flesh. And by the ordination of God, it became a visible sign of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter number 15. And it would become actually also the sign of the old covenant, the sign of the Mosaic covenant. And you boys and girls know what a sign is. A sign is something that points to a further reality. You're driving down the road and you see a deer crossing sign and it alerts you to look for something else. That thing is not the thing. The sign is not the thing, but it says points to the thing that you should be looking for. You may not see it in the moment, but know that it's there. So it, it alerts you. Um, in a similar way, um, there are other signs such as wedding rings. Um, a wedding ring would be a sign. If you were to look at my left hand, you would know immediately that I'm married and that I have entered into promises and covenants with a particular woman to whom I am bound for the rest of my life, not only in life, but even unto death. And in a similar way, God has given signs throughout um, His work in creation, throughout His works with the people of God, and particularly... In Genesis chapter number 15, he gives this sign to the covenant people of God, old covenant Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to remind them often that when they see that, it is to point to certain greater realities beyond the deer crossing sign, that there is something out there that you should see. You may not see it today, but know this, that it is pointing to some greater reality. And just like the wedding band, the particular love of God that he has for um, his people. It is to remind them of the covenant-loving God that made His covenant with Abraham and giving Him unilateral promises um, that He would particularly bring into this world Jesus Christ, Galatians chapter 3 and 4, the substance of those promises, and that He would bless the nations through Christ. That Abraham's seed, Christ, would be that vehicle, that, that means by which God would bless the nations, not only Jew, but also Gentile. And this sign had become so ingrained into the culture not only in Jewish culture, but also Gentile culture, that Paul himself in Ephesians 2 would refer to the Jews as the circumcision and the non-Jewish people as the uncircumcision. This is who they were. It was an identifier for them. Um, but what reality really was fulfilled? Because it's pointing to actually a reality. It's, not, it's pointing to Christ, yes, but Christ would come and He would accomplish a particular reality. So all that Christ did is not encompassed in this sign, but something that Christ did is to teach some truth. and It's to point to something that we can identify, just like that deer. You're looking for something to identify so that you may see what reality was fulfilled. But it was this. It was an, it, this sign was to point to an inward reality in the life of a believer of the relationship with the one and true and only triune God. 
That this reality of the cutting away of physical flesh would actually point to an internal reality that would be true of all of God's new covenant people. And we see that um, revealed as early as Deuteronomy chapter number 10. This was not a foreign concept to the Old Testament Israel. Actually, Deuteronomy 10 verse 12, you read, Now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth that, and with all that is in it. Verse 15, he says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Their inability to please the Father in fearing God, obeying His commandments, Loving the Lord can be boiled down to the reality that they had hearts that were uncircumcised. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 actually gives a prophet, is a prophetic passage of the day in which God would circumcise their hearts. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine hearts and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, as long as you may live. Another way to boil it down would be this. Just as physical circumcision is the cutting away of the physical man, true spiritual circumcision is the cutting away of the fleshiness of the heart. See, little ones, God's Word is clear. We are sinners. We need a Savior. Our hearts are evil. We're sinful. We're mean. We're wicked. We're bad people. We've rebelled against God. And we have, we, we have a need that only God can fulfill, that we need that part of the heart removed. We need that sin taken away. We need it dealt with. And in tandem with that, it's not enough to take the heart away. But a new heart must be given. A heart that is pure, a heart that is righteous, a, part that, a heart that is holy, a heart that is good. One that loves God and keeps His commandment out of the love that they have for Him. See, spiritual circumcision is the death of that old man and the awakening of a true heart pulsing with the very life of God. This is what Paul argues in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 11, when he's speaking to New Testament believers. He says this, In Him, speaking of Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sin and uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That all throughout the Old Testament, we're looking towards this new covenant reality that when Christ would come, He would finally and fully accomplish that which would take away, cut away the sins of all men. That it would put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that it would give to man um, the reality the, and, and, and the, the contents of character, the heart that would actually be able to love God and keep His commandments. This is the purpose of the giving of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 verse 33, Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. It is in contrast to the old covenant which could accomplish none of those things. That by men's strength, 
by religious external forms, by man's ingenuity. He could build uh, skyscrapers to the heights of heaven and he could do things as, as even um, our brother Greg was, was illustrating this morning, you know, that we have such an intellect and, a, and a, the ability um, to, to accomplish things by the common grace of God. But know this, man at his best, when you put every human being, not only in this generation, historically, geographically, geographically but throughout all the world, if all of them were to come together and devise some way to, 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 to have a right standing with God, they would fall short 100% of the time. That was what was contained and cased in some sense in the Old Covenant law. But even in that, it was gracious. In the sense that it was to show men their incapability. That after trying to, to, to keep the, the more than 300 laws... They, they should understand that they are without God and without Christ and unable to perform in such a way that they can meet all the standards that God would require. So the law, the old covenant, circumcision in and of itself would push them on to Christ. But there was coming a day. There was a coming a day in which Christ would come finally and fully in, in, in real time and reality. And He would give His life ransom on on, on Calvary for sinners just like, I, like us. Why? Jeremiah 31. So that He would put their law in His minds. He would write their, His law upon their hearts. He would be their God. He would finally have a people, um, a pure people. Ezekiel 36. Um, how would that be accomplished? A new heart also I will give you. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will take away that stony heart of flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Paul is arguing in Philippians, Colossians, and many other places throughout the New Testament that in Him you, because of Christ's work, have been circumcised, if you're a believer, in the heart. Circumcised not with the, 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 the instrument of Moses, but with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And that physical circumcision has found its fulfillment. This is why it's no longer binding upon Christians today. Has found its fulfillment not only, or not in the ordinance of baptism, um, as our Presbyterian brothers would argue, but in the spiritual circumcision of the heart. In the miracle of what we would call, in the Scriptures, called regeneration. How? By the very Spirit of God. As the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, cuts away the flesh with the sword, of the Spirit, cuts away the old man in forgiving him of all of his sins and in the gift of the new man, a new heart, a new life that would live forevermore. And the Judaizers prided themselves in the right relationship that they had with God. They took great comfort in their physical circumcision and in their physical lineage that could be tied to Abraham and to Moses. And Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, don't be deceived. We, those who are now both Jew and Gentile, are united to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection through faith. We are the circumcision. And we are marked out. And here's the point, alright? Here's one of the great points that Paul's making. Don't miss it. We are marked out. Just as the people of God in the Old Covenant are marked out by physical circumcision, we, too, are marked out. Not by physical marks passed down from Moses but through the eternal and spiritual marks etched into our hearts by the very sword of the Spirit, by the Spirit Himself, the very Word of God, 
And as he wields it, he cuts away the old man, slays the flesh, births in us a new heart, the very life of God. And this is now what sets you apart as the people of God. Not a physical mark pointing to that reality, but the true spiritual mark. Just as the Old Testament people of God are marked out and identified with physical circumcision, you and I are marked out with a spiritual um, circumcision, yet the marks are there nonetheless. But they are primarily internal that would, um, that would, out of an abundance of heart and cultivation in the heart of man, would overflow into his hands, his feet, his will, his mind, and all aspects of the human man. So then the question arises, as the Spirit of God wields that sword, and the gospel goes forth into our hearts and truly grips us and changes us. What mark does he leave behind upon the soul of a man that would identify him as the true circumcision? And here in this text, Paul gives us three. Those three marks that the Spirit of God accomplishes. Um, number one is the worship of the Spirit of God. Number two is the boasting in Christ Jesus. And number three is taking no confidence in the flesh. And I must say just a, a quick note or two. Um, that Paul is calculated here. Um, he's not saying that this is all that it is. You can look throughout the New Testament, particularly First John, and what you'll find is that there are other marks of a true regenerate man or woman that can give you confidence in your salvation. Um, but Paul is actually dealing with the uh, heresy of the Judaizers. Thus he picks these three. Why? Because they boast in their flesh. Why? Because they don't worship God in the Spirit and they don't boast in Jesus Christ. Um... And also, not only that, but so it's not arbitrary and it's not exhaustive, um, but it does constitute a unit. You know, I don't want you to walk away like a, a uh, like an avid sports person and think, you know, because you hit two out of three that you have a 666 average and you're doing pretty good, you know. And the reality is, is that when the Spirit of God is there, all of this work is accomplished. Maybe in its imperfection, yes, we still struggle with sin, and it's hard to see on some days, but those who are truly believers are batting a thousand here, all right? That, 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 that it's not, you can't walk away and think, I've got a good grip on one, and the other two I'm not sure about. No, whenever a person is brought to life, and they have the life of God pulsing in them, know this, that they worship God in the Spirit, they boast in Jesus Christ, and they take no confidence in the flesh. They take no confidence in the flesh. And the application this morning, I'm going to go ahead and give you. And the application this morning that I want to draw your attention to is just, just simple reflection. Boys and girls, I mean by reflection, just simply thinking upon the realities that are proclaimed and asking yourself, is this true of me? First of all, is this true? Does this guy actually know what he's talking about at all? Like, you know, if that's okay to say, right? Um, to, to, to ask whether or not these things are true. But if these things are true, then it's not this guy that knows what he's talking about. It's God who is speaking and saying these things are true. And if these things are true, then I should ask myself, are these things true of me? You know? Like, do I worship God in the Spirit? Is this reality something that, 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 that I can say is, is true of me? And I know that we don't put a whole lot of stock in experience, but experience is important as it bows down to the truth of God's Word. Actually, Paul is going to use his experience in just a moment and say that, that, that look at me, you know. Not in, a, not in a, a, a prideful type of way, not arrogantly saying, model your life after me, but humbly proclaiming the glorious reality of Christ and saying, this is who I am. You have no hope either. Trust in Christ. 
trust in Christ. So, number one, if the Spirit of God has truly circumcised our hearts, I'm the first mark, we might even say the second mark now, um, however you want to outline that, the first mark is going to be that the true Christian worships God in or by the Spirit. That's what he says in verse number three, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. The first mark uh, etched into the soul of a man that would alert him to the reality that he is, has been united to Christ by faith is that the old man's cut off You've been forgiven your sins and you've been given a new heart by the grace of God such that you now worship God in and by the Spirit. Let's look at that word worship. It's an interesting word. In Paul's day, he could have used a a number of different words for worship. And when you read that word, you probably think um, about the, the, the concept of worship, of bowing down and falling prostrate before God. And that is a word that could have been used, but that's not actually the word that Paul uses here. He actually uses a word that he's used more than once in this passage of Scripture uh, in the book of Philippians. And it's actually a word that we get our word liturgy from. I mean, it literally could be translated to serve or to hire. I mean, it would no doubt perk the ears of the Judaizers up or anybody familiar with the Old Testament, um, a Jewish Christian that had been saved or a Christian that's learning about the Old Testament as they're reading the Greek translation of that, which would have been the Apostles' Bible, which would have been Jesus' Bible, uh, most likely. Um, they would have ran into this word, um, letru, which means it's liturgy. It's, it's where we get our word liturgy from. It was almost synonymous in the Old Testament with the worship of God or the service of God in the temple. This would have been that, that act of service that the priest, um, it, would have, it would have brought to the minds of the Judaizers and the, even the Christians who were just steeped in Old Testament. Um, it, they, they would have initially went to the priest offering sacrifices, um, going to the altar, washing his bloody hands, uh, trimming the wicks, adding the oil, walking into the holy of holies. Romans chapter 9 verse 3 actually translates this word, the service of God. In recounting all of the blessings that the, that the Jewish people had, some of those that they had, that were the, the, those promises that pertain to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the promises, and and this translation actually translates it the service of God, the service of God. See, Israel was unique, and that all the nations in the world, Israel was the only nation that had access to the manifest presence of God. While people like David and, and others all throughout, uh, even, even those that weren't a part of Israel, had access to God in some saving way as they ascend to the promises of the coming Messiah. Um, as a Gentile or outside the nation of Israel, there was no access to the manifest presence of God, such as in the Holy of Holies. Israel was unique in that way. There was a certain order of their worship in which they were to approach God, to enter into His presence and to seek out His blessing. So what does that have to do with much of anything? Remember, Paul's argument is calculated. He's contrasting the Judaizers with the true circumcision. How's he doing it? He's doing it by contrasting their worship, their service, their approach, and their access to God. Paul is declaring that the true circumcision are those people who no longer approach Him by external forms of worship, such as the shedding of animals' blood, the, whole, uh, the virtue of a priest, but now, according to the blood of Christ, we approach Him 
in the power of the Spirit of God. And Paul is saying, don't be deceived. When the Judaizers bring forth the idea that you have to approach God, Yahweh, by means of religious form, external rites, religious activity, keeping of the law, know that they're wrong. Those things are symbols, they're pictures, they're not the real thing. They're, they're pointing to something, that, that to a greater reality that has been fulfilled in Christ. And as a result of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and His ascension, He has brought down the Comforter, the very Spirit of God, who now fully indwells you in such a way to enliven your worship that it's no longer in a place geographically, um, it's no longer given over to a singular priest or a primary lineage um, of, of blessing, but it is given over to the entire people of God. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, you'll remember a conversation between Christ and this woman. And he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither enter into this mountain nor in Jerusalem to worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. The argument is going, they're arguing over where to worship God. On this mountain or here? In this temple or that one? Which one's the true temple? Where can we find God? And, 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 and Jesus Christ is clear as day. Right? That there is coming and the hour now is where you won't worship Him here or there, but you'll worship Him in the Spirit, by the Spirit, by His power. Paul is saying that new covenant worship is fundamentally internal now. That the new covenant worship is fundamentally internal reality, not external. It fundamentally happens in the soul of a man, in the whole body of a man, as he relates to God. You now don't have to be of an Aaronic or Levitical, uh, Levitical priesthood. You don't have to tie your um, lineage back to enter into the presence of God. That today, you, church, if you've binded yourself and you're in union with Christ by faith and repentance, you have every right, and us as a body this morning, to enter into the very presence of Christ. Boldly coming to the throne room of grace. Where at one time it took a Levitical process. One time a year to enter into that place. To fall prostrate upon their faces. And seek the forgiveness of God. Now it's wide open in the heart of a man. And you could lock him in a box over in a Muslim country. And he could still worship God out of the spirit of his soul. Why? Because he's literally in union with Christ. The true new covenant worship is now no longer tied to a geographical location or a blessed lineage. But it is tied to the soul of the man. And not only is it um, particularly internal, but it is comprehensive, fully exhaustive. In Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1 and 2, you'll read those, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He goes on to say, which is your acceptable worship. It's the same word. It is, it is acceptable service. Pleasing to God. That worship moves outside the temple walls. And it moves to all of life, church. So it's not actually arguing that you can't worship God in external forms. We do it every week in some fashion. 
We do it with baptism. We do it with the Lord's Supper. We do it with the means of grace that He has supplied for this place. But what he is arguing that, that actually all of this, including all of that, 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 the worship of God, the service of God, is, 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 is comprehensive activity. That everything that you do, everything that I do, constitutes as the service of God. Why? Because now you're a royal priesthood. You are a priest according um, to, the, to, to the lineage of Christ Himself. You can tie it all the way back to Him. You're not a priest in the sense of saving as a mediator, but operating within the temple of God, particularly the people of God, in the way that God has gifted you, poured out His Spirit upon the whole church, 1 Corinthians, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 12, and has gifted to every believer some spiritual gifting for the common good to serve one another in a priestly fashion. That you are serving God with every ounce of your life. That it is comprehensive in its revelation and its illumination. It is ex more exhaustive than even the Old Testament. And this is something that should just floor our minds. How often do we think, man, if I would have lived in Moses' day and saw that sea parted, like I would have believed him right there. Like I would have followed him to the end. I would not have been like Israel. I would not have turned away in the wilderness, you know. Like when everybody else left, I would have kept going. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have argued for leeks and garlic. I would, have, I would have loved the manna. I just want to taste it one time. We hold ourselves kind of high and lofty over these people. Why? Because we look at them with somewhat of a jealousy as, as if they had more. These clear manifestations of God's power. Even the disciples, you think, man, Peter was a fool. Um, that the disciples didn't understand what was going on in the clear manifestations of God's power that continue to disobey and to rebel. But you know what the Scriptures actually argue? Um, that you know more. That you are in a better position. That you actually have a clearer display of Christ. That, that Jesus actually argues, it's better if I go away, why? So that the Spirit can come. That with the Spirit, He'll reveal to you things um, that, 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 that they did not understand. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 10. Um, Peter actually argues there that the prophets, as they, as they wrote things down, did not even fully understand what they were writing. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter, the same writer, argues as he is probably alluding to the Mount of Transfiguration. In contrast to that or in tandem to that, he actually says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. You know what Peter's saying? Peter's saying that you have more in the Word of God by the power of the Spirit than I had in the experience in the Transfiguration. Can you imagine what it would have been up to be like there with the disciples? Such that they wanted to stay forever. They're arguing with Christ as He unveils His glory in such a way that the other nine won't see and you and I have no clue about in this life, maybe in the next. And Peter actually argues like that was glorious, but as glorious as it was. Because you have more in the Word of God, to shine forth in a dark place than I had in even that moment. Why? Because Christ is truly present. He is truly present with you today in the power of the Spirit and has the power and ability to make realities more real to you than any experience ever could by the power of His Spirit according to the Word. Do you understand that this morning? 
That true worship happens in the heart. And when true worship happens, the Spirit of God is able to take the Word of God and make the glory of Christ more real than on the Mount of Transfiguration. More visible to the eyes of your heart than when Peter walked on water and saw Christ coming. Than anything, make make Him more real to you this morning than anything and everything that you'll ever see with your eyes, hold with your hands, or embrace in your bosom. To love unseen things. Isn't that amazing? John argues in 1 John, um, how can you love that, uh, whom you have not seen when you don't love those whom you can see? And in some sense, he's arguing that you can love things unseen this morning. Why? Because the Spirit of God makes them real to you. He opens your eyes. He opens your ears. He reveals them to you. He illuminates His Word such that, 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 that Christ is more real to some of you this morning than that person sitting next to you. That's faith. We're not arguing this morning that the presence of God is manifest in a tangible, audible way that you can feel and palpate um, the, uh, something with your hands or, or you can taste it with your actual physical mouth. But, but, but there is something as God grants faith and gives you repentance and He brings you into union and communion with God. The reality that the Spirit of God brings to life in you is as, as if He is with us this morning because He is. Thus men. Like will devote themselves, abandon all other realities, natural and known, seen with their eyes for this, this, this love for unseen things. This Christ in whom you've never seen this morning. You'll live and you'll abandon and you'll sacrifice and you'll serve. Why? Because of the love that you have for Him. Why? Because He's as real to you. Um, and more real to you than anything else. That's the power. Of the Spirit of God in the heart of a man. As God takes the realities of the Word of God. And just binds them to your soul. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. Christ is present with us this morning. He is here walking among the candlesticks. And it's more than present in an omnipresent type of way. But in a true way. Ministering to the saints. Um, and I would say he's more present here than some of some of us are. You know, in church, I would ask you today again, reflection time. Do you know anything of this new covenant spirit wrought reality? Do you understand experientially more and more that the Christian life is more than academic? It's more than a good understanding of a systematic theology. It's more than a great grasp on the London Baptist <clears throat> Confession of Faith or our statement of faith. Do you know, boys and girls, do you know, men and women, what it's like this morning to have been consumed by your flesh, to be ruled by your own heart, to have a heart filled with sinful rebellion, to know that you're wrong with God, and have the Word of God go forth from tangible forms in your eyes and ears to unseen places, the very recesses of your soul, and by faith wrought to in the very work of Christ, grace extended to you in the cutting away of that old man. Do you know what it is like to revel today in the glory that your sins have been pardoned? And that everything that you've done in opposition to a holy God has been nailed to the tree of Christ. And as that old man dies and is cut away and there's that tension day in and day out, the Spirit of God who has taken permanent residence in our soul continues to conform us to the very image of Christ. You know what it is to have a heart so full of the truth 
And the glories of Jesus Christ. That you're delighted and compelled to commune with Him. In His word, in prayer, and in praising of His holy name. Do you know what it's like this morning to be satisfied in Christ? Do you know Him? Do you worship God in and by the Spirit totally dependent upon Him? That if yes, we utilize forms this morning and external means, we know that those are only avenues to administer the grace of Christ to us, that it is Christ who saves. Or is worship this morning for you a mere cold formality? Is it a form of externals? Is it a time of worship? And as one faithful brother has said, Is it being in the right place this morning, at the right time, with the right people, saying the right words, without any true, real, vital engagement of the Spirit with the whole man? Can you go home today and tell me every person that was here, but you cannot tell me whether Christ was? You know? You may do this and you may do that and you may go to church and you may have your Bible study, but has the Spirit of God set your heart alive for the glory of God such that, that, that you see your whole life as an act of worship for Him? That worship doesn't end at the doors, but when you go home and you as mothers are training your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you fathers are, are, are accomplishing the same. You're going off to work and to labor to care for that home. You're engaging the community. You're engaging your home. Do you see that, that you are a sacrifice unto a holy God? You are a priest offering and rendering service not only to them but to Him. Is your spiritual life internal? Do you know that God is real? As He manifested it in such a way that you give your whole life to Him. Number two, and again, I, I promise, we'll be done by 1215. Um, we'll get it done. Um, number two, the true Christian. What is the second mark? God is etched in your soul. The Spirit of God lives and dwells. What is another mark that I could look for to have confidence that I am in Christ and He is in me? The true Christian boasts in Christ Jesus. Boasts in Christ Jesus. We may very aptly say that this is the fruit of the first and the second. Because God has revealed Himself to you by the power of His Spirit. In the person of Jesus Christ. It has resulted in the utmost love for Christ that He is our total, final, and preeminent boast. The New King James here says that you, quote, rejoice in Christ Jesus. But if we're not careful, we might think that the same word here is used in verse number one, uh, or is the same word that's used here in three is the same as one, but they're actually two different words. You know, one actually says rejoice in the Lord. Um, but in verse number three, rejoice in Christ Jesus is actually a different word. And I think the ESV translates it glory. Another translation may, may, may translate it boast. The idea is actually boasting. It's being proud of. And rejoicing is not wrong. You can see how someone who boasts in the Lord, actually a manifestation of that would be to rejoice in the Lord. This is one of Paul's favorite words. Out of the 37 appearances in the New Testament, 35 of them are Paul's. This is one of his preeminent arguments. To boast in the Lord. To get to the idea of what it means, um, you can turn back to Philippians 1 and verse number 26. Um, Paul says that you're rejoicing for me, that you're boasting for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. 
Paul is actually speaking here of a proud confidence, um, not in a pride in a way that um, it's arrogant, but in a pride that a small child might have for a father or for an older brother. He's someone that he is boasting in because of the um, respect and joy that he has in that other person. The idea is to place a proud confidence in something to glory or boast in someone or something. And again, this is calculated. Um, Paul's not simply throwing a few characteristics um, of a believer. He's arguing the great um, danger of the Judaizers. Why? Because the Judaizers rejoiced, gloried, boasted in, and had proud confidence in what? The law of Moses. If you were to go to Romans chapter number 2. You would actually see that argument there. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 23. Paul argues this. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. And he actually argues from that um, about the circumcision and uncircumcision. The true circumcision. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the whole law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even, written, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The idea that Paul is arguing that the Jews cannot be justified by the keeping of the law. You who boast in the law. And he characterizes them as those who boasted in the law to keep the law. And this is what their confidence was in. Paul's going to argue um, in Philippians that, that, that the true boast of any believer is going to be in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Galatians 6.14 But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Thus, Paul argues that the true mark of a believer, of a, of a person who has been circumcised in the heart, who has had their sins taken away, that their boast is not in the law, but in the very work of Christ. Thus, we sing songs like, Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All sin could not, uh, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And in more contemporary words in our hymn book, no list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. One brother writes, he is their joyous theme, speaking of Christ. The word indicates a buoyant, he says, satisfaction in him. They enthusiastically appreciate who he is and what he has done and glorify him as alone, worthy of all praise, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. But it's more than just placing our trust and confidence in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones in a sermon on the text says, Many people believe in one cause or another and are prepared to give their general support. But others are on fire on behalf of their cause. They're zealous, keen, and active, prepared to shed the last drop of blood in their veins for it. They are proud of it. They glory in it. That is the word, he says. That Paul, throughout the New Testament, actually utilizes this word boast in many ways. And one of the texts that he loves to quote is out of Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. 1 Corinthians 1.31, he actually, he actually quotes that. 2 Corinthians 10.17, he quotes that. Where, he, where, where, Paul, where Jeremiah um, argues from a word from the Lord that says that if you're going to glory, glory in God. And he actually argues it like this, Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Many have asked the question, and we'll ask it this morning, just for you to ponder. What does it mean to glory in the Lord? What does it mean to boast in Him? Well, what would it mean for a wise man to boast in his wisdom? What would it mean for a strong man to boast in his strength? What would it mean for a, for a, a rich man to boast in his riches? You all know men like that. These things occupy their minds. They are that which they are identified by. When a man loses his strength, he loses his identity. When a man like that loses his riches, he doesn't know how to operate. When a man loses his wisdom and his ability to calculate in his mind, he loses his identity and his reason for life. Not only that, but he's ready at any moment to let you know how wise he is. Um, he's ready at a moment, the, the strong man. Um, he's ready at any moment to let you know how strong he is. He wears the shirts for it. He flexes so that you'll know. So does the wise man with his wisdom, looking for any and every opportunity to show you exactly how much knowledge that he has and how puffed up that he is. The rich man loves at any moment to display his riches and what he drives and in his home to invite you over, not for true fellowship, but to boast in what um, he has. And in some sense, we would say that that's what God means with Christ. That as the wise man boasts in his wisdom, as the strong man boasts in his strength, and as the rich man boasts in his wealth, we too are to glory in the Lord. Why? Because of his loving kindness and his judgment and his righteousness in the earth, Jeremiah says. For those things are what please him. So what would it mean to glory in the Lord? That he's consumed with Christ. That his mind is constantly filled with the thoughts of our Lord. He's constantly meditating and ruminating on the glories of Christ. It's more than just being preoccupied with an ideal person or a concept. He, he trusts in Christ with every fiber of his being. And he derives his identity, entirety, from his union with Christ, such that without Christ, he is nothing. Just that without wealth, the, 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 the rich man is nothing. Without strength, um, what, what would the strong man be but nothing? Without wisdom and knowledge, what would the wise man be? He would be nothing. Without Christ, we would be nothing. That's what it means to boast in the Lord. To glory in Him. But it's not a pride born out of arrogance. It's a pride born out of humility. Understanding that we are nothing and that Christ is everything. And if I am anything today, I am what I am by the grace of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. 
So of course he can't stop learning of him. Of course he can't stop talking of him. Of course he can't stop rejoicing of him. He, of course he, Christ is forever upon his lips. Why? Because the Spirit of God is forever upon his heart. And he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For he says it with the apostle, because it is the power of God unto salvation. And he believes it not only as propositionally true. He not only orders the words right, but experientially, as with Paul, he knows that he has been made for God. He has been remade for Christ. And such he should honor him with all of his life. And whether or not all men come, every man in this world should know, and every nation, tribe, and tongue, that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning for evermore that whether one man comes we as a church should recognize this morning that christ is worthy that all the world would know of the glorious truth that is retained in him they should know of his person his character his nature and his work he should not be a means to an end out of the affection that we have for, for the world although it's a true affection born out of the love that christ has for them but it is enough god is worthy enough this morning and for us to go into all the world if no one turns to Christ. That all creation knows that there is a God in heaven who loved the world so much that He gave His only Son on behalf of sinners like us that we may know Him and be found in union with Him. Listen, do you know anything of that reality this morning? Reflection time. Is He any of those things to you and for you? Is He your boast? Is he your, not only do you have confidence in him, not only propositionally is it true, but does he fill your mind? Do you revel in delight in the glories of Christ? Do you seek after him and do you, do you seek to make men known? Or do you, to, to make him known to men? You know? You say, I believe those realities. Then where is your boast? Where is your boast? Number three. And we'll go through this quickly because we're going to touch it next week. He puts no confidence in the flesh. Last mark, no confidence in the flesh. Why would Paul say this? Because they put confidence in the flesh. They put confidence in what they could do, what they could accomplish. And this really is just the negative aspect of the second mark. It's almost the other side of the coin. And it really is something of a further exposition of the glory or boasting in Christ Jesus. Because He is everything, we are nothing. We put confidence in nothing. Paul then lists here in verses 3 through 8 all of his crowning human achievements, not to glory in his self from a previous life, but to put before you, display such a man that if he could earn his salvation, he would have earned his salvation. Thus it is to put from a human level, not only comparing ourselves to Christ, but to Paul, um, it, sh it should just lay us hopeless before a holy God because there is no way in the world that we could achieve a status that is acceptable to him. Why? Because Paul tried. And he fell short. He was left wanting. As if anyway, he goes on to say, I was circumcised the eighth day. He had ceremonial ground. He had hereditary ground. He was tied to Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Um, he was a social elite. He had social ground. He had moral ground. He said concerning the law of Pharisee, um, concerning the law blameless, he had moral ground to boast. Zeal, persecuting the, uh, the church, devotional ground. He had reason to boast. He was committed beyond all others. And what was his ultimate conclusion? 
As he examines the totality of his life and he adds it all up, every good and seeming pious act and anything to take advantage of in light of God and His holiness and the glory of Christ, he moves everything that once was an advantage to the column of disadvantage. All of his seeming Jewish privilege now no longer is privilege or advantage, but it's disadvantage. You know? What we see contained in here is, in some sense, the doctrine of total depravity. You know? You look at Paul and you think, he wasn't totally depraved. If there was a good guy, like Paul was the guy. I mean, he was a moral, I mean, like, he kept the whole law. He's not Hitler. He's not the worst that a man could ever be. That's what we think of when we think of total depravity. Oftentimes we think of a man who is depraved totally. And we think of Hitler, Stalin, and these men um, who were, were homicidal um, and suicidal. And manifested it in all the world like the greatest demons that you could ever find. Um, but maybe total depravity is, is more than that. And it means that man is totally depraved even at the core. And that everything that he does, even his righteous acts, are still filthy rags before a holy God. And maybe more of what we might see today in our culture and within the, the, our church is total depravity manifesting itself not so much as Hitler's, but as Paul's. You know, I know that that's my own sin. Growing up the moral kid, like I, I relate with Paul here. Like out of the five that were us, I was the good kid. You know, I was the one that was, that, 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 that mom care, uh, compared to the others, even to, de- to her detriment and to their detriment. You know, I was the guy. Like look to him, look after him. Why can't you be like him? You know? This moral kid trying to appease the authorities over us, and it extended even to uh, to God, an unrighteous, a self righteous, unrighteous young man. You know, and the total depravity I mean, is probably more displayed within the context of a local assembly, not in the utter rebellion, but more deceitfully in those this morning who think that because they did something externally, performed some religious rite, um, sang the right songs, in the right place, said the right words, came to the right place, have some status before a holy God this morning. And Paul is saying that if that is you this morning, put all of them in a column. It's not an advantage, it's a disadvantage because it's deceiving you. You cannot earn yourself a place with God. There is nothing that you can accomplish that, 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 that puts you in, in, the, in the column of acceptance with God outside of Christ. But if your glory is in Christ, there is no confidence in the flesh. But after you examine your heart this morning, have you lost all confidence in the flesh? Have you become hopeless before God? If so, then I would beg and plead with you to look to Christ. To not lean upon your own understanding this morning. Not to lean upon your own works this morning. That if you have truly been circumcised in the heart, If God has cut away that old man, then you walk away with no confidence in the flesh. And Christ becomes everything and you become nothing. You become nothing. We conclude with that this morning. You are the true circumcision. You worship God in the Spirit, not in your own flesh. Whether in the assembly of God's people or in the privacy of your own home, you delight to engage in the worship of God from a warmed heart an animated spirit built up by God Himself through the power of the Spirit. And you taste unseen realities. You love that which is unseen, even more than the brother or sister that sits next to you. 
Christ is more sweetly um, understood and more sweetly tasted as the Spirit takes the Word of God to the depths and recesses of your souls. You're fine with external religious rites and ceremonies, but only insofar as they reveal the true risen Christ. Thus you glory in Him, and all your boasting is in Him. He compels your thought and your attention. Your confidence is in Christ and in Christ alone. He becomes the object of your delight and adoration. And it's evident in the manner in which you boast to others. Thus you have no confidence in the flesh, and you're ready and willing at any moment to tell them that. Look at all that I've done, and it's a heap of nothing. But look at Christ and all that He's done. And it's everything. You're quick to renounce your status as a man. To uphold God's status before men. You know you can't. Even on your best day, you'll never be good enough. And you're fine with that because Christ is enough. Do you understand that this morning? Do you know that? If so, boast in Christ. If not, I beg today... That you would trust in Him with all that you are. Um, leave it all behind. Put your faith in God. Trust in Christ, His death, burial, resurrection. Um, and spend the rest of your life as a living sacrifice to God. That is the only life worth living. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory again that is in Christ Jesus. We thank You for the privilege it is just to boast in Him. Father, some would ask, why write such a sermon? What need do you see in the church? Um, but at the same time, Father, we recognize that sermons should be written as much for God, more for God than even for men. He is worthy to be written about. He is worthy to be preached. He is worthy to be boasted in. He is worthy to make all the world know, even in the absence of their faith and their total rebellion, Father, every creature in all the world should know how glorious this Savior is. So may, we, may you help and aid us, Father, to make him known. Father, if, if we're without Christ this morning, if there's one boy or one girl here this morning that doesn't know those realities, Father, we don't know how to make that happen in their hearts. Father, we cast ourselves in inability upon you. I don't know how to make them believe. So, Father, we trust your Spirit to accomplish that. To take something, Father, from the Word of God, already buried in their heart from their faithfulness, from the faithfulness of their moms and dads. Father, even something that's heard this morning, irrespective of what the intent was, we know that you can bring dead men to life, that you can bring dead women to life, Father, that you can take out hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. And, Father, in that we rejoice and lean on and wholly depend this morning for you to accomplish the work. So, Father, we leave it in your hands now and pray, Father, that you'll help and aid us this week to, to recognize worship as, as, a, as a comprehensive act of life. Father, help us to serve and to labor in him, Father, within the temple of God, the true people of God, and uh, may you be honored and glorified for it. Father, show us more of Christ, for it's in his name we pray and worship. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing number 209.